The following is a message from Christ the King Presbyterian Church in Roanoke, Virginia. For more information about the ministry of Christ the King, please visit us at ctkroanoke.org. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Christ the King. Uh, For those of you who don't know me, my name is Penny, and uh, I'm the senior pastor here, and it is good to be with you. Uh, If you have a Bible, I encourage you to turn to Romans chapter 16, Romans 16. Um, Can you turn me down a little bit? I'm getting some echoing. Thank you. Um, So we are coming uh, to the end of our series in the book of Romans. So this uh, series that we began way back in September, we're now concluding this morning by looking at the three uh, verses that end Romans chapter 16 and end the, the book that we've been going through. And and as uh, before we jump into these three verses, just as way of reminder of where we've been. In the book of Romans, we've heard Paul declare uh, the ways in which God has worked in his creation. Paul spent many weeks talking about the sinfulness of man, our rebellion and our turning from God. He then turned our focus to the fact that God is the one who redeems us through Jesus, who is the perfect and better Adam. But in redeeming us, God hasn't forgotten about Israel. His promises remain true. We then heard how how these beautiful doctrines, how these beautiful truths of theology, how they meet what they mean for us in our day-to-day lives and how we are to live as the body of believers, living together, united in times of rejoicing and grief, in times of dispute. This is what Paul has been doing throughout this book. And we come to these last few verses. And the last word that Paul gives to us, the last thing that we hear is a word of praise. And so if you would follow along in Romans 16, beginning in verse 25. Paul writes, Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed, and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that uh, you have given us this moment, this time where we can come to it. And we ask that our hearts and our minds would be enlivened and that we would uh, give you the praise and the glory that you are deserving. So we pray that you would meet with us, that you would lead us, and that by your spirit, you would open our eyes to the beauty of your gospel. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I'm... I'm not a, a huge follower of the sport of golf, but I do remember that uh, a change took place a number of years ago. I didn't watch a lot of golf, but I do remember that there was a time when if you would attend a, a tournament, a match, you would see a beautiful drive, you would see an amazing putt, that the crowds, though there would be many there, that though there would be thousands of people watching, that when they witnessed this amazing thing, they would give the golf clap. Do you all remember golf claps? We don't see golf claps much anymore, but that's what it was, right? Because golf's a very subdued sort of sport. You don't erupting cheers and celebrating. You don't hoop and holler on the golf course. No, you give the little golf clap, right? It's it's cheering, but it's a controlled 
cheering. I have to ask if you remember this because the golf clap has seemingly gone extinct. And, and I'm not a golf historian, but it seems like it went away when Tiger Woods came onto the scene. You remember Tiger Woods, he comes onto the scene and he's hitting drives like no one's seen before and he's making these amazing chips and putts are just going in from hundreds of feet away, right? Like these amazing shots and, and people who had never watched golf before are starting to go to tournaments and, and they don't know about the golf clap. Instead, what they do when they see this amazing drive, this incredible putt, this beautiful chip is they hoop and they holler and they celebrate and they cheer, right? Y'all have seen it. And they do this because they've seen and experienced something they had not seen before. That they had not experienced before. They were seeing and experiencing something new, something amazing. And the golf clap wasn't just enough. It wasn't sufficient to describe what they were experiencing. And so they had to hoop, they had to holler, they had to cheer. Now I have to tell you that sometimes... Sometimes it feels like our response to the, the depths of theology that we encounter in places like the book of Romans and, and, and what God is doing in the world and what we read in scripture, sometimes it feels like our response is like the golf clap, right? I mean, people, good Presbyterians that we are, right? Our response of, of wanting to be precise and accurate, we, we give the head nod and we say, oh, that's quite interesting. Hmm. And we golf clap and we move on to the next interesting thing, right? This is what we do. But what's amazing to me is that at the end of this letter, Paul, the theologian, right? Paul, this deep thinker, Paul, after 16 chapters of some of the richest theology we will ever encounter, some of the deepest words we will ever read, Paul, the theologian, doesn't end with a golf clap, but exuberant praise. He ends with doxology, Right? There is an excitement, a joy, a celebration in Paul that can't be contained. Prose isn't enough to describe all that he has written. No, he must praise. Right? That's what, pra- that's what theology and doctrine and the things spoken of in this letter, that's what they do to Paul. They stir in his heart and soul joyous celebration. He can't contain himself. He erupts in praise. He erupts in praise because of God's work and because of his wisdom. And my hope is that when we see the work that Paul points us to and the wisdom of God, that that our hearts too would be stirred to praise. And so what are these works that Paul points us to? What are these works that erupt praise in his heart? Well, it's God's work of strengthening us. You see how the passage began. Now, to him who is able to strengthen you. Now, this language of strengthen, this word, it it can mean establish. That's how some other translations translate it, to establish you. And what it's getting at is this idea that we are fixed firmly, that we are supported, that we are rooted and established. We are not able to be moved. It's the ability to stand in the midst of difficulty, to be firm against temptation, to not waver when called on to do good. That's what Paul says, that that we are those who have been strengthened. And this strengthening, this establishing, 
It doesn't come from us. It's, it's not something we muster in ourselves, right? We don't just kind of will ourselves to be stronger. We don't hit the gym. That's not the kind of strengthening he's talking about. What he's talking about is a strengthening and establishing that comes only from the Lord, that comes from his gospel, Because Paul goes on and says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but now has been disclosed. You see, it's the gospel. The gospel, the message that Christ came into this world to save sinners, sinners like me and sinners like you. That by his life and death and resurrection, sins would be forgiven. That is the message that establishes and strengthens us. You see, the image Paul's giving us is that the gospel, it props us up. It's like a walker or a crutch that we lean upon. Now, some of you might not like that imagery of a crutch. Some of you may not like that imagery because sometimes we hear skeptics, those who who don't believe in Christianity or who are opposed to religion, sometimes we'll hear skeptics actually disparage religion generally and Christianity specifically by saying that it's simply a crutch. Right? So, for instance, uh, Jesse Ventura, the former governor of Minnesota, and I I just have to say, like, Jesse the body Ventura, right? Because he was a professional wrestler before he was the governor. Um, But, and that's what his name was. So, I just can't help it. But Jesse the body Ventura, the governor of Minnesota, when he was the governor, once said, religion is a sham and a crutch for weak-minded people. And maybe you feel, as you hear that, that sense, that nagging, that, that it shouldn't be that way for us. Like, we shouldn't be people who need to lean on something. That we shouldn't be people who need to be propped up. That we should be strong enough that we don't need a crutch. You know, um, after Kat's surgery, so some of y'all will remember in December, Kat had surgery. She had a tumor uh, near her pelvic bone, and the tumor had wrapped around a nerve, and so they had to take the tumor out, and when they did so, they had to cut out some of the nerve, and so there was a gap. And in order for her leg to continue to be able to function and have proper movement and whatnot, they needed to fill that gap. And so they went into her calf, and they took out a nerve, and they grafted it into that gap. Okay, and she's doing amazing, right? Like, she's doing great. She's able to walk and run and do all sorts of things. Like, it's, it's wonderful, right? The medical technology today, it's, it's unbelievable, right? That is praiseworthy in and of itself, right? But so, so, um, so Kat, though, right after that, right after that, her leg was weak. In fact, her leg had very little strength in it. And so for many weeks, she couldn't put weight upon her leg. And so what did she have? She had a walker, and we were thankful for that walker because it allowed her to get up and move from room to room and place to place, allowed her to still come to church even while she was in recovery. She needed that walker to lean upon, to rest upon, to prop herself up. Now imagine, if you will, that after the surgery, she's lying in the bed, and and the doctor, the OT, they come to her, and they say, well, here's your walker, and here's how you use it, and this is why you need to use it. Imagine in that moment, Kat took that walker, and she threw it aside, and she said, no way, uh uh-uh. 
that is not for me because I don't need something like that. I can hold myself up. I'm strong enough. I'm powerful enough. And she goes to get out of bed, and what does she do as soon as her foot hits the ground? She's going to topple over, right? And she's going to do, do more damage, and she's going to hurt herself because she has no strength. She needs to be held up. You see, when you are weak, when you're in need, what you need is a crutch, a walker, something to hold you up. And the message that we have heard throughout the book of Romans is that we are needy people. That it may not be our physical inability to stand, but it is our spiritual inability to find life. That we are a needy people. That we cannot, by our strength or our will or our mental acuity, find life. That what we need is support and to be established and to be strengthened. And that's what the gospel does. You see, in our weakness, the gospel, the declaration that Christ has lived and died and risen again, that forgiveness of sins has come, that life is given, that that message comes to strengthen God's people, to prop us up, to hold us and strengthen and establish us. Is the gospel a crutch? You better believe it, and I need it. I have no problem saying that. We lean and stand only on the gospel. It is what holds us up. It is what strengthens us. And friends, when we realize that we weren't just limping along, but we were dead and are now alive, and that those who needed support and strength, that that strength has been given to us through Christ, when we realize that, how can we not praise God? How can we not celebrate the life that we have been given? How can we not erupt in doxology? Right? Because of what God has done, the work of God in strengthening us. But it's not just his work of strengthening, strengthening us that causes us to praise. It's also his work of saving the nations. See, throughout the letter, the message from Paul has been that the gospel is not just for a single church or a localized people, but the scope of the gospel is the nations. And we hear it again. We hear it again in this doxology. God strengthens his people. The mystery that had been hidden has been revealed. The Messiah, Jesus, has come, and this revelation is taken to the nations. Look at verse 26. It has been made known to the nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of the faith. You see that? That the missional orientation of the gospel is to take the truth of Jesus and his saving work and the promise that sins have been forgiven and to take it into the world. So that as the psalmist declares, the whole earth would be filled with the glory of God. That is the promise. That, that is the scope of the gospel. That it would not be contained to one location or one time or one language. Right? That it wouldn't be contained to a small sliver of land in the Middle East. Or it wouldn't be just in a tiny little mountain town in southwest Virginia. But it would extend into the nations so that every tribe and tongue and people would know the glory of God. 
that every tribe and tongue and people would sing the praise of God. That praise would not just be contained to this place, but to the nations. That the peoples would praise him. That we would sing the praise of God for his work. That is why we give him praise. Because he strengthens us and he saves. But we also give him praise because of his wisdom. That's how our passage ends. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Now that one little sentence has such wonderful theological import as well as practical implications. The theological truth is that there is only one wise God. There's one. So Paul's speaking into his cultural moment, right? A cultural moment that was filled with a plethora of gods. And what he's saying is that the gods that filled the city of Rome and the gods that you once worshipped and the gods that still are trying to tug at your heart, those are not gods that you are to follow. There is only one wise God, and that is the one revealed through Jesus. All other gods, the gods of the Greek and Roman world, the gods of the pagan nations of the Old Testament, and the gods of 21st century America, gods like security and safety, like money and career, gods like education and influence, these gods are foolish. That they promise life, but all they bring is death. There's only one wise God. Now this is the theological truth, but it's not just theological, it's also pastoral. It's practical for our day-to-day lives because because the fact that God is wise has import for our day-to-day lives. Most of us would acknowledge that he is wise, that he is a wisdom not like us, and yet sometimes it's hard to see that wisdom, isn't it? It's sometimes hard to believe that God's ways are wise. I mean, we already heard in Romans 8 that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And that's a beautiful statement in Romans 8, and it's a statement that calls us to trust God's wisdom, his working. To trust God's wisdom even in difficult seasons. In trying times, in situations wrought with uncertainty. We have to trust his wisdom because it's in those times that that we can start to wonder, is God really working all things together for good? Is God truly wise? I mean, we felt that, haven't we? I mean, in times of diagnoses, right? In, In times of uncertainty, in times of joblessness. In times of relational strife, it's, it's easy to wonder and to think, is, where's the wisdom of God in this? But y'all, isn't it often the case that, that once we get a little bit of distance, that once we get a little bit of space, a little bit of time, that oftentimes God will actually show us, show us his wisdom. He will, he will show us how he has worked. It's kind of like a tapestry. Have you all ever seen the back of a tapestry? The back of a tapestry looks like a giant mess. 
right? Because there's yarn and wool and string and all these sorts of things in different colors, and they're going in all sorts of different directions in different places, and, and sometimes they go in really short, and they're like just tiny little lengths, and sometimes they're really far, and, and, and it looks like there's no purpose. It looks like whoever was doing this tapestry, this sewing, this knitting, or I don't know what you call it when it's a tapestry, but was putting these strings together and this yarn together, it looks like they were blindfolded. Because <laughs> it's a mess. It looks like it has no purpose. And sometimes that's how it feels like in our lives, doesn't it? Like, like all the strings are going in all different directions and there's all these colors and there's no purpose, there's no direction. It can look like a mess. But when you flip the tapestry over, you see how all the strings have come together. And you see how all the colors, they're woven together. And you see this picture and you see that, that what looked like a mess on the back, what looked like it had no purpose, actually had great purpose. And it's created beauty. That the one who was making the tapestry knew exactly what they were doing. They were creating beauty. And in God's kindness, in his favor to us, he sometimes lets us step back and to look upon our lives and what we see that we thought was a jumbled mess is actually God's wise work. Using a situation and a circumstance to refine us into his image, to protect us from temptation, to lead us away from the flesh, to make us more and more like Christ. What we see is God's wisdom at work. The one wise God working in and through us. Now I know that there are some of us, in fact all of us I'm sure, who can and maybe would say, well I, I haven't seen how all this fits together. <laughs> right? Whatever I went through, maybe it was a month ago, a year ago, ten years ago, I, I still don't know what God was doing. Or right, maybe right now, whatever I'm experiencing, I, I don't understand how God is working this together for good. I don't see his wisdom in this. And that's true. Sometimes we don't know. And sometimes, out of God's wisdom, he doesn't show us. We're not actually promised that we will know all the ways in which the strings fit together and make this beautiful picture, but... But what we are promised is that even when we don't know, God is still wise. And that we can still give him praise for his wisdom, because his wisdom, though we may not see it clearly in our lives, we see it most clearly in the cross. You see, we can have confidence that he is wisely working in our lives because of what the ways in which he has wisely worked in sending Christ. That if God, out of his wisdom, would send Jesus to take on our sin, to give his life for us, then we can trust him to be wise in the midst of our circumstance, in the midst of our situation, in the midst of our difficulty. You see, the wisdom of God is most clearly demonstrated in the cross, because in the cross, God takes the weapons of the enemy, the weapon of death itself, and Christ takes death upon himself. And through that weapon, he brings life. Life to us. What the world sees as foolish, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, is the wisdom of God. And so we can give him praise. 
We can praise God, not just when we see how things fit together, but even in the midst of what looks and feels like mess, we can give him praise because we can trust that he is wise. That he is the one who has worked to strengthen and to save his people. That he is the one wisely at work even now. And friends, when we know this, when we look to the cross and we see the wisdom of God on display, when we look to the cross and we see his salvation, when we look to the cross and see that he is strengthening us, a golf clap isn't sufficient. It's not a good enough response to what he is and what he has done. Instead, friends, we should ask the Lord, let our hearts be stirred, enliven our minds, and fill our mouths with praise. Praise at the work and wisdom of God. Let's ask him to do that now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would, by your Spirit, fill our mouths with praise. Praise because you are at work saving and strengthening your people. Praise because you are the one wise God who is fitting all things together for the good of those who love you. We ask that you would help us to praise you. Praise you when we see your glory and praise when we see only our sin. That we would praise you this day and all of our days. For you are deserving of our praise. And so we ask that you would allow us to give you praise now as we sing to you. And we pray all this in Christ's name. And God's people said together, Amen.